Father, we praise you for the remarkable story of the spread of the gospel in those early days as you used very ordinary human beings and did wonderful things through them as the gospel went all over the world. So please, through your word, inspire and equip us that we can play our part in that great work in our generation for the glory of your name. Amen. You'll know the apocryphal story, you've probably told it often in your sermons of the Lord Jesus arriving in heaven, having achieved the great work of salvation. He's died, he's risen, he's ascended, and a delegation of angels send the angel Gabriel to him and to say, Jesus, it's amazing what you've done, but what we want to ask you is how you're gonna make sure that the world hears about the incredible salvation you've achieved. And so the apocryphal story goes, as I'm sure you know, Jesus points down to a little gathering of very ordinary human beings. Had been fishermen, tax collectors, all of them just days before had abandoned him and betrayed him. And he says, I've told that lot to tell the world. And Gabriel says, that's very interesting, Jesus, but what other plans have you got? And Jesus said, oh, I have no other plans. It's an extraordinary way of doing it, isn't it? And God need not have done it that way. And yet he's chosen to spread this amazing news of what he did through his son, through very ordinary human beings, not superheroes at all. And yet it happened. Because as we know from the book of Acts, they were to wait in Jerusalem until they received power from on high and then empowered by the Holy Spirit, those very weak, ordinary human beings did indeed begin to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And yesterday, we looked at the first arrival of the gospel in Europe in a place called Philippi. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, neither Steve nor Athel have come up in touch with the very latest research on pronunciation of Greek cities, but I don't want to betray and reveal the ignorance on that that matter. (laughs) But it's all there in the latest uh, research documents. But it doesn't matter how you uh, speak about it, the gospel reaches Europe in pretty undramatic ways to some degree. Do you remember, It's it's a bunch of women outside the city gate, that's where it all begins. And the gospel progresses. Now we've got to Acts chapter 19. And Paul is back in the Roman province of Asia, back in Turkey, he's crossed the Aegean from Greece, and he's in Ephesus for two years. And Luke focuses on three episodes. You'll know as you go through the book of Acts, we find the gospel moving out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. It arrives in Rome in Acts 28. And there are these progress reports along the way, so the word of God spread, so the word of God spread. And in one level it seems it's an amazing progression and you could tell the stories if it just happens seamlessly. But again and again and again, as Luke tells the story, there are obstacles. But God overrules and the gospel progresses. Here we find the gospel confronted with what you might call obstacles but the gospel progresses. We find in Acts 19, the gospel confronting incomplete Christianity. That's verses one to seven. These disciples of John who understand something of Christianity, but there are significant gaps in their knowledge and their experience. And there are many, many in Europe like that 
with an incomplete Christianity. Then there are the sons of Sceva. Great interest in the spiritual realm, but they seek to use it for their own ends. They're only interested in Jesus for what they can get out of him. A false spirituality. And again, there's a lot of that in Europe. And then still others, at the end of the chapter, are marked by what we might call a religious fundamentalism. Jesus clashes with what they are absolutely convinced is right, and they're not even prepared to engage with the gospel because they've already made their mind up. It's a fundamentalism. There's a lot of that in Europe today. So let's see the gospel confronting those realities. There's much to learn. First, the gospel confronts incomplete Christianity. Verses one to seven. And in each of these sections, we're going to notice a truth about the Lord Jesus. And the truth here is that Jesus brings new life. Paul arrives at Ephesus, verse one, and he found some disciples. It seems they claim to be disciples of Christ, but they turn out to be disciples not of Christ, but of John the Baptist. And Paul quickly senses that something's not right about them. He asks, verse two, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they reply, no, we haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. I don't think that can literally mean that they've never ever heard of the Holy Spirit. They were disciples of John, they would have been Jews, they knew the Old Testament, and the Old Testament is full of references to the Spirit. And the reference is that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit on all people. They knew that. And as disciples of John, they would have heard him saying, there's one coming after me whose shoelaces I'm not worthy to untie. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now they must have heard of the Holy Spirit. But they didn't know that the new age of the spirit that had been promised in the Old Testament has already come. The Pentecost has happened. And so Paul asks, verse three, then what baptism did you receive? And they replied, John's baptism. John's role, of course, was preparatory. He was the one prophesied in the Old Testament who was to come before the Lord himself visited his people to say, prepare the way for the Lord. Make a straight path for him to walk on. He was first and foremost a preacher He preached a message of repentance and baptism was the visual aid. That was very common for Jews to preach baptism to people, but to Gentiles. It was a way of saying to Gentiles, you can, if you come into Judaism, you need to be cleansed because you are dirty, you Gentiles. But it was unthinkable for a Jew to be baptized because they are the holy people of God. But John preaching to Jews and saying, you need to be baptized, is saying, you're not, you're not fit, you're not clean, you're not ready for God as he's about to come. It's not a polite message. We go out into the streets of Nottingham this afternoon and say to some random person, excuse me, you need a bath. The implication is clear. It's not a polite message. And John said to the people of Judaism, the Jews, you need to be cleansed, you need a bath. And by submitting to baptism, they are saying, we are not fit for the Messiah as he comes. We need to be cleansed, we need repentance. But John says, I can't do that for you. I can just get you ready, but I can't cleanse you, I can't change you. All I can do is make you wet. 
but there's one coming after me. He can baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He can change you deep within. Now these 12 men had benefited from John's ministry, but they'd never received from Christ the salvation to which John pointed that only Jesus could bring. The, the, the person I heard of recently who'd gone into hospital, the nurses had prepared him for the operation, he was there on the operation table, he'd even had the anesthetic, but then the operation was canceled. He's in, as it were, suspended animation, waiting for something, but it hasn't happened yet. And here are John's disciples, they've been prepared for Christ, but they haven't received him yet. Now some from this passage suggest that it's possible to be a Christian without having received the Spirit. And as a young Christian, uh, I was converted at 18, I was full of the joy of Christ. For, For me, it was a quite dramatic conversion and a very emotional, exciting conversion. And everything was going very well, challenging, big changes, but I, I had a year-long spiritual honeymoon. But then I met uh, someone as I was traveling, and she said, um, you haven't received the Spirit, because I didn't speak in tongues. You haven't received the Spirit, and you need to. And that was the first kind of, what well, was the end of my spiritual honeymoon, really. I didn't want to miss out on anything. So I read through the whole New Testament. Her pastor wrote to me, explaining why I hadn't received the Spirit and why I needed to receive the Spirit and so on. And I read through the whole New Testament. I didn't want to miss out. And as I read, I thought, they're wrong. Because as I read the New Testament, it seemed clear to me that forgiveness of sins and the coming of the Spirit belong together. It's there in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, interesting, on the day of Pentecost that Peter preaches about Jesus. And he said, why is this happening? This amazing miracle, the Spirit come. It's happening because Jesus is Lord. He's the ascended king. And as the new king, he's able in the new age to distribute this amazing gift that was prophesied by Joel. And therefore, this is evidence that he is the Lord. And when they realized it, the crowd were horrified. It dawned on them. We've killed the king. We've crucified the Christ. And they said, what must we do? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These are the two gospel gifts that go together right through the book of Acts. Paul in Romans 8 verse 9 says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. It's by the Spirit we come to Christ in the first place. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, Paul speaks about baptism in the Spirit as unifying. As John Stock puts it, 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 it is a universal Christian experience because it is an initial Christian experience. These men are not unspiritual Christians. I want to suggest to you they're not Christians at all. And so Paul doesn't, to clarify their understanding about the Spirit as if that's the big problem, notice what he does, verse four. He spoke to them about Jesus. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. Now that he spoke about Jesus who through his death on the cross had made forgiveness possible, who was alive and risen, 
how he'd ascended, how he'd sent the Spirit, and he was offering forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, and those two gospel offers go together right through the book of Acts. He was offering them if they trusted in Christ, and they trusted, and they were baptized. Here's the truth again. Jesus gives new life. And so Luke says, verse five, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. On the day of Pentecost, the coming of the Spirit was, was marked in a very obvious way by the ability of these people to speak in other languages, in that case, identifiable other languages as they declared the praises of God. And Peter prophesied, he proclaimed the gospel. On two other occasions in the book of Acts, you get uh, speaking tongues and the coming of the Spirit at the same time. Uh, the Samaritans in Acts chapter eight, the disciples in Ephesus here. It's not always like that, even in the book of Acts. It's clear, certainly, when you read 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul makes it is crystal clear, not everyone speaks in tongues. We have different gifts. The tongues is not the marker of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Why here? We can't be sure. But it seems a very public way of showing everyone the Spirit has come to these people too. It's, it's a kind of repeat Pentecost in a way, so no one can doubt it. Now we won't meet disciples of John today, but we'll meet many like them in Europe. There are fewer in Britain than there were 20, 30 years ago, but there are many in other parts of Europe, in some parts of the Europe that they're, they're the majority of the country, Christianized people, who'd be horrified if you suggested that they weren't Christian in some says, known as disciples of Christ, but they're not. They're not converted. They've heard much of the truth of God, maybe from church. And a church that's not really teaching the truth, but at least it has Bible readings and there's something in there, or maybe from Sunday school. In that sense, they've been prepared for Christ. They think they're Christian, but they've never trusted him personally, and therefore they've never received the Spirit. Theirs is an incomplete Christianity. That was me. I was brought up going to church most Sundays. I went to a church type school where we had chapel very regularly. In fact, by the age of 18, I'd been to church or chapel two and a half thousand times. That's a lot of religion until the age of 18. But I'd not heard the gospel. And yet there was lots of good stuff that I had heard. I had a broadly speaking Christian worldview. I, I believed there was a God. I thought he'd created the world. I thought Jesus was something to do with him. But it hadn't all come together. No one had explained or preached the gospel to me. And when the gospel was preached, the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and it was a very quick conversion. It could be because all the pieces were there. They just had to be brought together and the Holy Spirit had to open my eyes. At first, after my conversion, I was very resentful of the religion I'd had. How could they not have given me the gospel? As I look back now, I'm actually grateful, although still some degree of resentment, they should have taught me the gospel. But there was enough there to make the conversion quite quick, everything was in place. Once again, there are many in Europe in a similar position and we need to follow Paul's example. 
point them to Christ. There are so many whose understanding of Christianity is essentially moralistic. It's about a way of living your life. Or religious. It's about certain religious rituals. Or just simply see it in terms of creedal statements and a declaration of belief without recognizing there needs to be a personal response to the living Lord, Jesus Christ. Point them to Christ. We don't have to start with the destructive work. It's interesting, Paul doesn't say, who's been looking after you? Why haven't they told you more? Just points them to Christ. Think of some Roman Catholic friends of mine who've come to faith in Christ. And they'd been going to church, but they'd never been taught a a faithful gospel, but there was lots of good stuff in place. And when we began to look together at the Bible and see Jesus right at the center of the Bible, it began to come alive and at first one of them carried on. He had to go to mass every Sunday. It was deep in his mindset and I thought, I'm not gonna take that on at this stage. I let the Bible do its work. And praise God more and more as he read the Bible, he realized there's a disjunction here. And the word of God did its work. And Jesus became central to him. Let's be praying that we can be used to reach those with an incomplete Christianity. Europe, there's lots of atheism, there's lots of agnosticism, but there's an awful lot of incomplete Christianity, vague Christianity. We need to pray that God would use us to reach people. There's a challenge here though, of course, for Christians too. Who've been genuinely converted and genuinely received the Spirit, but how easily we live out an incomplete Christianity as if the spirit hadn't been given. It's what a friend of mine calls the kidney donor card view of the Christian life. You've got a kidney donor card, you might put it in your wallet. It's not very useful day to day. You don't pay your supermarket bill with your kidney donor card. It's frankly just there for use at death. When you die, your relatives could, could use it and your kidney could be donated. And there's a view of Christianity that's sort of permeated into some people. That when we come to Christ, we've got the certificate of justification. We put it in the wallet and it's very comforting. We think when I die, I'll be able to take it out and I'll get into heaven because Jesus faced my judgment. I'm justified, but it doesn't make any difference to my, to my life day by day. But Jesus gives us not just a new status, but a new life by the Holy Spirit. Francis Schaeffer is a a young missionary in Europe, had a a major crisis. As he began to, to look at the Christianity that he came from, very strong doctrinally, but bickering with one another, and he sensed too often in them and in himself, lifeless. And he went back to basics. Edith, his wife, was worried he'd give up on the faith altogether. He said, I've just got to go back to first principles. He'd pace up and down on a rainy day in the barn where he lived. On other days, he'd tramp around the Alps studying the scriptures. And then he wrote later, gradually, the sun came out and the song returned. And he realized he'd been living the Christian life as if the spirit hadn't been given. In fact, on one occasion, he asked people, 
What difference would it make if every reference to the Holy Spirit was removed from the Bible? And he said in too many Christian lives, in too many churches' lives, the difference would be very limited. An incomplete Christianity. Jesus brings new life. Let's live in the light of that day by day and urge our church members to live in the light of the living power of the risen and crucified Jesus Christ. Next episode, verses eight to 22. The gospel confronts false spirituality. Paul goes to the synagogue, as was his custom, and for three months, we read, he argued persuasively about the kingdom of God. This is no hit-and-run preacher. He argued, he debated, no doubt he listened to objections that were raised, he answered them patiently, but many rejected the gospel and increasingly opposed it, and so after a three-month period, he moved out of the synagogue to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. It's a strange name, Tyrannus. It means tyrant, which is very hard to believe that his parents called him tyrant. I guess this is a nickname, which gives you a sense of the kind of teacher he was. His pupils called him tyrant. And Paul went to this lecture hall, and he preached, and he debated day after day after day. Verse 10, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. We saw yesterday that revivals often happen in very surprising little pokey places. But that doesn't mean to say we shouldn't strategize. It's absolutely right and proper to think, where can I go that will have the biggest impact for this community or this region? Paul thought like that all the time. And here he is in Ephesus, a bustling commercial center. People from the whole province would come. All roads in the area came and went from Ephesus. And by preaching in this very public forum day by day, loads of people who came in heard the gospel and went out and were gossiping the gospel, or at least gossiping the fact that this weird man was preaching this strange stuff. It became the talk not just of the town, but of the whole area and a vast area was impacted. It's very hard to get it right, isn't it? To yes, think strategically while recognizing God could have very different plans. And God can very often work in surprising ways that as it were laugh at our strategy. It's a bit of both. And God supported the apostle and his message with what he describes in verse 11 as extraordinary miracles. You might say miracles are by definition extraordinary, but these are extraordinary, extraordinary miracles. Miracles, even in the Bible, by the way, are extraordinary. It's not as if right through the Bible, miracles are daily occurrences. And as you read through the Bible, it seems they come especially in clusters. They're focused in clusters. At the key moments of major new steps forward in the history of salvation, the great redemption of the people of Israel at the time of the Exodus, great miracles, the plagues, and so on. The beginning of the prophetic age, Elijah and Elisha, the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospels, and then the, the revelation of the Gospel 
to the apostles. Hebrews 2 speaks of the, the, the apostles' message being attested. Just as the, 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 first, uh, the law came by angels, so the, uh, the Holy Spirit attested to the apostolic message with miracles. And when people question whether Paul was really an apostle, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, he says, I myself did the signs of an apostle. And so it seems that they were clustered around that age and around those who first received the revelation of the gospel at that stage. That's not to say that God cannot perform miracles in any age and that he cannot perform them today, but it's to suggest that we would expect a greater preponderance of miracles round about the time of the Lord Jesus and the apostles. But these are extraordinary, extraordinary miracles. They're rather strange, aren't they? Even compared to what you find elsewhere in the New Testament. Verse 12, even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched Paul were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. It seems uh, might have been a sweat rag, maybe around the forehead of Paul or an apron that he was using while he was working possibly in his trade as a tent maker and people took them and they were used in, as people prayed for the sick or cast out evil spirits and God honored that and amazing things happened and not surprisingly others noticed what power there was, not in Paul, even those who weren't Christians noticed this was not Paul's doing, it was the name of Christ and they wanted to tap into that power. So they used Jesus' name literally as a name to conjure with but not as a name to bow down before and worship. But they soon learned Jesus is not prepared to be used in that way. Verse 14, 17, uh, seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The devil's very subtle. He entices people into the world of the occult and spiritism by offering them a buzz, a sense of freedom, a sense of power, but he's really only out to enslave and destroy. He offers to give so much, but he's just taking all the time. And these sons of Sceva and what happens to them are a very poignant visual aid to the destructive power of Satan. They're overpowered, they're beaten, they're left naked, and bleeding. David Gooding in his commentary, by the way, anything by David Gooding is well worth reading, buying. His commentary in Acts is excellent. He says, still today, those who claim to be able to harness the power of the spirit, the spirit world rather, are themselves, in fact, not its masters, but its victims. And there's a warning there. To any who think that they can just dabble in the world of the occult and somehow use and channel these powers. No, they will use and channel you. We need to warn people. But there's a broader warning, not just for any involved in the occult, but for any with a false spirituality that seeks to use Jesus. And there's something of that in all of us. 
how easily we want Christ on our own terms. Perhaps not as a charm to cast out demons with, but still, first and foremost, for our purposes. And he can become almost like a genie in a bottle, out of sight and out of mind most of the time, but somehow expected to leap to attention when we rub our prayer lamps and he's expected to come running. Yes, master, your wish is my command. Of course, it sounds horrific when put like that. But how easily that false spirituality seeking to use Jesus infects our Christian lives. We protect ourselves. We will not let him make uncomfortable demands on our lives. His role is to do our bidding, not vice versa. That, in extreme form, is seen in the perversion of the prosperity gospel. Jesus, we want health and wealth. Well, how marvelous. That's what Jesus offers. If you come to him, he'll give you health and wealth. There's no challenge to worldview. It's a materialistic worldview with Jesus somehow fit in, just as you've got an occult kind of worldview with Jesus fit in to give you what you want. It's there in the therapeutic gospel as well. Philip was talking yesterday about the, uh, the self-help movement. And there are plenty of kind of self-help versions of Christianity. He made, a, I think, a quotation from a journalist who spoke about the worried well with their belief in their right to feel good. And how easily, very subtly, we can end up giving a version of Christianity that is just giving people what they want. I've got the right to feel good. Well, Jesus can make you feel good. He's the charm that helps us realize our goals of self-assertion, self-fulfillment, self-contentment. That may look very different from what the sons of Sceva were doing, but at root it's exactly the same. It's a false spirituality that seeks to use Jesus. By the way, it's a danger for pastors as well, for those in Christian work, that very subtly, we begin with great intentions, we want Jesus to be glorified, but after a while, almost without noticing it, well, the Jesus gospel and the message we preach is a way of helping, helping our egos so we feel good about ourselves and we love it when people listen to what we're saying and frankly the message becomes secondary to what we love to see happening, people eating our every word people following us, looking up to us can be the, the, the danger when we're a, a charismatic uh, leader and we've started something from scratch and, and people have been converted and we are the one that has greatly helped them. There's a power in that. It can quickly go to the head. And we didn't start out meaning to do it. But how easily J- Jesus is serving us rather than the other way around. And we need to learn is the truth about Jesus. Jesus demands repentance. That's what they learned there. Verse 17. When this became known about what happened to the sons of Sceva, to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Do we fear him? Once Jesus is lifted up and we behold the man as he really is, it becomes unthinkable to seek to use him. And there will be a holy, right, reverent, 
fear as we seek to be used by him and be conformed to his likeness and transformed by him and we are humbled by the way in which we could ever have even thought that we could use him. Jesus is not a servant to be used. He's a master to be obeyed. They realize he needed to be taken very, very seriously and if he's to be taken seriously, sin must be taken seriously. And how easily I play with sin. It's hidden away in a little cupboard in my heart. And I get on and, and to, to live the Christian life and do ministry, but then occasionally I'll come back and open it up and have a little look. And maybe take out the toys and play with them. And then I feel guilty, I put them away back in the cupboard and I carry on, but how easily I keep going back, keep going back. And I take the toys out, throw them away put them on the bonfire and these people as they see something of the glory of Jesus and his power they take sin very seriously so verse 18 many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done there's a role for open confession it shows we're taking sin seriously that doesn't mean to say if we're pastors getting up every Sunday and and giving a list of all the things we've done during the week but maybe one of the the signs that we're taking our sin seriously we want to take it out of the cupboard and boot it out of our lives is to say to a brother or to a sister someone appropriate brother sister this is the struggle I've got this is what I want to root out of my life and chuck away will you help me pray for me keep me accountable and that can be very, very hard to do, especially for those of us in ministry, especially as more and more people are looking up to us. And we didn't mean them to put us on a pedestal, but once they have, we don't want to take ourselves off it because it might harm them, because they think somehow that we can't do that kind of stuff. Well, maybe you don't need to talk to them, although it's very important they don't think that you can't do that kind of stuff. But are there those you can speak to very openly? I myself have been hugely helped by a small little accountability group. Occasionally people say to me, Vaughan, um, you can ask me any question you like. Sounds great, doesn't it? It doesn't help me very much. I suppose I say to them, so have you beaten your wife recently? And they're horrified. What do you think I am? Do you, th- do you think I'm the sort of person who beats my wife? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Godly Christian men beat their wives. Outwardly godly and godly in many, many ways. Christian pastors beat their wives. And brother, if that's you, repent and seek help. But I don't know if it's you or not. So it's much more helpful when someone says, look, these are the questions to ask me. Someone said to me once, if you were the devil, where would you attack yourself? Well, I know if I was the devil, where I'd attack myself. And those are the areas I need to, that's my Achilles heel, I need to put protection around. They're the areas that I need friends to keep me accountable on. Are there friends who know those questions to ask and help you? They openly confessed. 
and then they took radical action. Verse 19, a number who'd practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. A drachma was a day's wage. This was costly. We need to take radical action to root sin out of our lives, to throw it out of the cupboard, put it on the bonfire. Someone I know was in a job which is a very good job, very distinguished, high profile job, but he said the culture of that workplace was such that it was just expected to lie. And he'd been doing it for so long before he became a Christian that he felt, I can't stop, I've got to leave this job. He ended up leaving it, getting another job which was much less profile, much less pay because he couldn't fight it. Someone else could have stayed there and resisted. He knew he couldn't. He needed to get out of the job. Think of others who've made sure that there is no internet access in the home. They've tried everything. They've put the internet in the public place. But no matter where it is, they can't stop themselves from going to things they shouldn't be seeing. So no internet access in the home. I don't know what it is for you. But we've got to think, what do I need to do to root sin out of my life, chuck it away, and put it on the bonfire? False spirituality is just thinking all the time, how can Jesus help me feel good about myself, exercise power? True spirituality recognizes that Jesus is the divine son of God is to be feared and obeyed. And before we dare tell anyone else about him and urge them to fear and obey him, we need to fear and obey him ourselves. Jesus demands repentance. So here's the gospel confronting incomplete Christianity and false spirituality and moving forward. And we get one of the wonderful progress reports in verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. It's moving forward, but it's not a seamless progression. Let's look finally, and more briefly, at 23 to 40. The gospel confronts religious fundamentalism. And here it seems to come, at least in this instance, against an immovable object. And the truth we're going to discover is that Jesus provokes opposition. The temple of Artemis, or Diana, dominated the city. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, standing 60 foot tall, supported by 127 marble pillars, many inlaid with gold and rare gems, 45 foot long, 200 foot wide. It was a very impressive sight, towering above the city. And inside the temple was the multi-breasted image of Artemis herself. She was supposed to have fallen from the stars, and some people wonder, maybe she was a meteorite. The temple was the cult, uh, the, the, the focus of a, a thriving fertility cult, and people would come to it from miles around. And that, of course, provided many commercial opportunities, and the local craftsmen made the most of them. Religion has always been big business. You can imagine it was pretty terrible, tacky, bric-a-brac stuff, but some was high-end stuff. Quite likely, some of it made by this man who we uh, discover here called Demetrius, the silversmith. 
And he was concerned, as many of them were, by the fact that profits were being squeezed because of the impact of the gospel. It had gone far and wide, and people weren't buying this kind of stuff anymore. That's what the gospel can do. The ripple effects can change cultures. And so Demetrius calls a a trade union meeting, and he delivers a stirring speech. Verse 26. You see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. There's danger not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited. And the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Well, I'm fairly cynical about the religious devotion behind that speech. I suspect he was driven by commercial interests. But he knew if he brought in the religious devotion element, that would give it extra power, even amongst the trade guild. Because it seems there was a genuine devotion to this goddess. And bound up with it was religious pride and national and racial pride. She's Artemis of the Ephesians. This defines who we are. We're united by devotion to this goddess. And here's this man with his newfangled belief that's undermining our religion and our essential national unity and racial pride. And his speech works a treat. There's outrage. The shout goes up, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and a mob quickly gathers and joins in with these business folk. And the mood soon turns very nasty indeed. The crowd gathers, they're outraged. They seize two of Paul's followers, they head to the theater, which was a vast structure by the way, could have held about 25,000 people. So you can imagine the scene. Here's a mob, baying for blood, thousands of them. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. We're seeing this kind of stuff going on in the Islamic state and and the Islamic fundamentalists. There's a, a hatred which is fueled by a sense of devotion to a particular understanding. Here's a religious fundamentalism which is violent in its hostility against the gospel. It's an ugly mood, and Paul wants to go and speak to this crowd and make a speech. But wiser counsel prevailed that said, no, Paul, this is not the time to preach. And he's pulled back. Calm is only restored when the city clerk goes in and says, look, if you want to press charges, press charges. But if you go on like this, you're in danger of getting in trouble with the law. And the crowd begins to disperse. There are no account here of any conversions. Paul doesn't even get the opportunity to preach the gospel into this situation. There's just strong, implacable opposition. And in chapter 20, facing this apparently immovable obstacle, after great progress in the region, Paul moves on to the next place. And today we too will face religious fundamentalism, often combined with a national racial pride bound up with this fundamentalism, whatever it might be, will be a sense of identity. And it will not engage 
with anything that challenges it. We're seeing it increasingly in Europe with Islam. Of course, let's not assume that all Islam is the same. But a kind of Islamism, fundamentalist Islam, a determination to oppose anything that stands in its way is growing, especially amongst younger people in Europe. And that's gonna be a major issue for us in the years ahead. And of course there's violent opposition to anything that challenges the honor of the so-called Prophet Muhammad. And we need to engage. It's easy just to be, to be frightened and, and scare off. Let's engage, there's a wonderful movement that actually began in Oxford, going around the UK a little bit, called Mahaba, Arabic for love which is encouraging Christians to befriend Muslim neighbors, to get to know them, understand something about their faith, engage with them. We've had a series of meetings for better understandings which have been well attended. And as an imam and a, and a Christian have presented their points of view about a different matter. And it's, it's been wonderful to see, I think, more conversions from Islam in uh, Oxford in the last few years than we'd seen for 20 years before. Great things are happening but it's tough. Let's not pretend that there won't be times when the gospel seems to hit a brick wall. We're praying, we keep praying for a change. Who would have thought that there'd been a great move amongst the Iranians a number of years ago? It can happen. But it's gonna be very, very hard. And if that's not the only kind of fundamentalism. If that's religious fundamentalism, there's also a secular fundamentalism. When the gospel hits the brick wall of an assumption about what is right and wrong which is not open to any suggestion of any other idea. Relativism, just assumed. Anyone who says there is one way, profoundly offensive. So some students in Oxford were trying to give Bibles to every member of their college community. And there was outrage because they were offering Bibles not just to those from Christian backgrounds, but to atheists and those from Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist backgrounds. This was an outrage. How dare you suggest that you've got the truth? All they were doing were offering a Bible. And the student press produced an article against fundamentalism. It's ironic because it was a fundamentalism of its, its own kind that was reacting against this apparent fundamentalism. And they spoke about uh, Muslim fundamentalism and, uh, and how they took um, young students and trained them for terrorism in uh, Pakistan. And then of course, they thought they, they ought to be fair-minded and so they decided, well we described Muslim fundamentalism, now let's describe Christian fundamentalism and they focused on St. Ebb's students and how we take them to a conference in Herefordshire. <laughs> not, not, ex- not an exact parallel. But there was hatred behind it. Or why is it that the issue of sexuality is such a huge one in our culture? Because it's challenging a fundamentalist belief in the autonomy of the individual. The right of the individual to define themselves and to behave exactly as they like. The advertisers, if you want to understand the culture by the way, look at the adverts. They're paid to understand the culture and speak into it in a way that attracts people so they can buy the products. How about some of these slogans? PlayStation, be whatever you want to be. Burger King, have it your way. Nike, just do it. Doesn't really fit with the gospel, does it? 
So when we challenge the right of people to define themselves, and to define how, exactly how they'll behave, profound offence. We're seeing it with sexuality. I think transgender is going to be a huge issue that we're just beginning to see. But it's going to be more and more an issue. These are non-negotiables. And I would be very surprised indeed if around Europe this wouldn't become a, a matter of increasing persecution. We're seeing it with equality legislation that at the moment is still allowing in most places for conscience clauses for, for religious belief. But I suspect it won't be long before those conscience clauses will be regarded as anathema, legalized bigotry, legalized discrimination. And I suspect there'll be a clash when we come across the kind of immovable object of fundamentalism, we need great wisdom. When do we engage? When do we withdraw? Paul was right to withdraw. There's a time, think nothing good's gonna come out of this. But how to stand firm and keep trusting the sovereign God. Keep proclaiming to all sorts, incomplete Christianity, Jesus brings new life. False spirituality, Jesus demands repentance. And yes, religious fundamentalism. Jesus provokes opposition. We might be hated, we will be hated, but keep doing it. As Paul moves on, back to Greece, onto Jerusalem, onto Rome in Acts 28. The gospel's reaching all nations. And now the batons pass to us. We're in Acts 29 country. And it's our task to keep preaching to the same kinds of people today, trusting the sovereign Lord to use very weak people in the power of the Spirit, at times with amazing fruit, at other times with apparent full stops and blockades. Keep preaching for the glory of his name. Let's pray. Lord, help us to proclaim the gospel to all sorts of people, believing it's your truth for everyone and pleading with you to break through the obstacles and to bring new life to the glory of your name. Amen.